Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I'll be sharing my conversation with Mia Bay, a professor of history at Rutgers University and director for the Center for Race and Ethnicity. She is co-editor of Toward an Intellectual History of Black Women, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Bay and her co-authors have brought together a strikingly good collection of 15 essays that presents us with a sampling of a neglected field of thought all focus on black women of the African diaspora in North America and the Caribbean, as subjects of critical thought and articulators of ideas on a wide variety of subjects. The authors demonstrate how black women lived and thought at the intersection of both race and gender. As a distinct field, the growth of black women's intellectual history has suffered from several handicaps, including resistance within the field of intellectual history. As black men are viewed as defenders of their race, black women are seen as activists, doers rather than thinkers. The informal nature of much of black women's thought, the lack of formal education, and religious-laden language makes them appear inarticulate in matters of racial and gender politics. The scarcity of written text, particularly for the 18th century and much of the 19th, renders constructing a history of black women's thought a project akin to archaeology. Limitations the authors readily take up as a challenge. The editors appeal to social history bringing greater acceptance of non-elite thought and feminist scholarship on the central role of black women in defining freedom and democracy as recognizing the field worthy of study. The essays cover a range of topics including religion, challenges to race science, the meaning of black women's bodies, respectability, political theory, and feminism. The entire collection is an excellent source and a promising movement toward constructing a transnational history of black women's thought. Here is my conversation with Mia Bay. Now let me introduce you to the author, Mia Bay. Hello, Mia. Hi, how are you? Welcome to the show, and thank you for coming on and talking to you about this new book. You and your co-editors have not only given us an excellent collection of essays, fascinating stuff, but also you're presenting a challenge. But before we talk about the challenge that you're putting forward, Tell us something about yourself, your background, and how you became involved in Toward an Intellectual History of Black Women. I'd be happy to. Um, I, um, in graduate school, I was a student of intellectual history. I worked with David Bryan Davis, who's famous for his work on the problem of slavery and in intellectual culture and um, problem of slavery in Amer American culture. Um, I'm now getting his titles wrong. I'm sorry, but... Um, and I was just very interested in the history of ideas. I was also interested in social history, but um, I was just very drawn to debates over ideas, especially about race and slavery. So that was sort of my intellectual background. I ended up writing um, my first book on the history of black ideas about white people in the 19th century. It's called The White Image and the Black Mind. Um, and um, that was when a time when people, when I, wrote that book, some people were beginning to ask, well, what about black women? What are they thinking? And I really had to think about that myself and think about the ways in which so much of intellectual history, including the study of ideas about race and slavery, is entirely about discussions of what men were thinking. Now, uh, this book is, does a lot of things. Uh, what I'm really interested in is the, the frame, the historiography, the frame that the editors are putting around all these essays. We're going to get into the essays, but okay. we know we know Sojourner Truth, we know Harriet Jacob, we know Haida B. Wells, we know uh, Polly Murray, we know uh, many, many African-American women, black women in the United States, uh, and they've been very, really brought into the historiography. But mm -hmm. you're making an argument about how they're being brought into the historiography and how we might look at them differently. What is missing in just including all these women in, the, in what we've done already? 
I think that black women are often brought into the historiography as um, as activists, as people who show up at protests, who mimeograph things during the civil rights movement. Um, and I think what's missing is often what they're thinking and the distinctive set of ideas and positions they bring to their protest. Um, because often male representatives of ideas tend to be the ones who get talked about. I mean, I.B. Wells is an excellent example. She was a really prominent anti-lynching activist in her own, in her own day. She was largely forgotten for many years after. A lot of her, her, her ideas became became part of sort of mainstream civil rights organizations. But that history was lost because we tend to, looking at sort of canon, in the past, canonical documents and who are the sort of leading thinkers, the, the, all the sort of leading thinkers tended to be male. Um, and even as people have begun to recover the sort of existence of black women and, and their sort of role in protests, often they're sort of presented as, as these sort of stock characters who kind of show up and do things as opposed to people who think, people who write, people who have things to say. Now, women, black women have been associated either with the black freedom movement or they've been associated with women's rights movements. They're usually mm-hmm. characters in those two movements. But I, your editor's seem to be saying that they need to be taken as a group as a whole. They mm-hmm. have a, a particular position that is not either one of those holy. It's not just the black freedom movement. It's not just women's rights. It's, it's intersectionality. Is this what you're coming at? Well, I think, I mean, I think one of the things we see when we look at black women over time is that black women always have a com- somewhat an easy relationship with either, you know, a sort of women's movement that is mostly white women or a sort of um, uh, civil rights or black freedom struggle that's led by men, oftentimes their goals are a little different or they're not fully representative or welcome um, in these spaces so that um, we have to kind of look at those tensions and look at the kind of spaces um, that black women try to for themselves or the ways in which they um, dealt with the challenges they faced in spaces that are sort of for dominated by black men or more about white women. Now, the editors are charging in the introduction that there has been resistance in intellectual history to looking at black women as intellectuals, as thinkers. Um, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, if you pick up any anthology on on intellectual history, be it about black intellectual history, white intellectual history, you'll find virtually no black women represented as thinkers anywhere in it. Um, So um, it's just they just don't come to mind as a category. Let's go way back to Phyllis Wheatley. Mm hmm. And her position in the historiography, how she's been treated by uh, different disciplines. And in the book, you talk, uh, there's a reference to the sale of one of her manuscripts most recently for mm-hmm. like $253,000 or something. I think, uh, how, how does she sort of embody the problem? Well, she's, she's a good example because, I mean, there was this incident recently where there was a poem of hers was discovered or, you know, a manuscript, a letter. And there was all sorts of stuff about how great it was that they found it, how much it sold for. But nobody talked at all about what she said. Um, and she has this sort of history where she was um, considered remarkable in her day as a young uh, teenage enslaved woman who be learned to read how to write, became a poet, um, eventually got her freedom, and was sort of taken by people on both sides of the pro and anti-slavery debate as a kind of example of black intellectual ability. So um, those in favor of anti-slavery sort of said, look at this woman, she's so accomplished, while others challenged her poetry. Um, throughout these debates, very little attention was sort of paid to her gender, which was sort of interesting. Um, and in over the years, as she sort of gained historical significance, people have debated, you know, whether her poetry was any good and so forth, but they haven't necessarily looked at her all that carefully as an intellectual, looking at sort of what she's trying to say, what kind of intervention she's trying to make in the debates 
of her day. Um, and, and, you know, she, we see her do that. We see her address her poems to major figures, write public letters. Um, so one of the essays in her book really talks about the ways in which she's a public intellectual. Um, and I think rather than being treated as a public intellectual, she's sometimes treated as a sort of abstract vessel, a sort of example of something about the African-American tradition that doesn't really take into account her gender or her, you know, sort of specific message that she tries to get across. Now, in order to establish this field of black women intellectual, intellectual history of black women, you kind of appeal to certain things that have happened, uh, Mm -hmm. social history, Mm -hmm. uh, feminist scholarship, Mm -hmm. and a lot of work that's been done in literary criticism kind of coming together Mm -hmm. and you're kind of saying history is lagging behind a little bit or at least intellectual history i mean i think intellectual history is in an interesting position these days i think a lot of the historical sort of genres are beginning to blend a bit i don't know if you feel this way too but social cultural intellectual are sort of beginning to blend and to the extent that intellectual history kind of maintains its life these days, it often seems to maintain it by being sort of traditional and, and you know, still focusing on um, mostly elite white men. And, and um, I guess there's, you know, there's a certain kind of intellectual history that sort of tries to get at the important thinkers that may have a rationale for that. But there's also a lot of intellectual history that is really about the history of ideas, um, and it does not do that sort of history any good to look only at what white men had to say. Right, and it's also you're talking about or blurring the lines between this binary of action and thought, mm-hmm. which I think uh, black women really do blend together. Exactly. They uh, they're thinking, but they're th- they're they're thinking, but they're doing, and they're thinking and they're doing, and it's all it's very much uh, together. It's not a separate thing. Yeah, and I find them particularly interesting as thinkers, precisely because so many of them are self-taught. Um, the history, uh, sort of traditional intellectual history, often looks at this thinker who was influenced by this thinker who studied with that thinker. And in looking at black women's intellectual history, we're confronted with people, you know, like Ida B. Wells, who barely goes to school and, you know, forms a lot of her ideas out of, you know, childhood experiences and, you know, difficult situations she encounters. And that's remarkably common for black women, that they often kind of are working in isolation. And it's it's a sort of interesting way to think about how people's ideas develop by looking at these figures who don't fit in the sort of traditional um, sort of idea of intellectuals as people who are all sort of, you know, maybe went to the same schools or, you know, worked in the same circles. These people are often really sort of their thought and their action are going together because they're kind of coming together on the ground. Now, there's several handicaps that the editors acknowledge in doing this work. Mm -hmm. It's particularly in the earlier period, 18th, 19th century, because yeah. you've got a scarcity of, of primary sources. A lot of these women did not write or did not, didn't write their thoughts down. They were doing informal kinds of things, maybe writing letters or speaking, but not, there wasn't a, they weren't consciously thinking, I'm going to write this down for the future. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you get around? And, and some of the essays are pretty creative, I think, and I think in a good way of trying to get at Mm-hmm. these silences mm-hmm. and trying to find uh, where these women are on the margins of text. Right. Right. No. And I think, I mean, I, I, this essay, these essays and this book generally draws on a lot of techniques that people have been using in African-American history for a long time where you don't have the primary sources. You'd like to have people's what people say are, is often sort of written down for them or they, we don't hear it at all. And you have to kind of, um, look at what people are doing sometimes and also look, use, you know, unusual sources like uh, court testimony, um, you know, letters to government officials, just sort of almost anything you can get your hands on. And when you start to open up um, 
intellectual history in that way <coughs> and use things like letters black women wrote to the Freedmen's Bureau, you know, you can recover to some degree what people are thinking. It's not going to be the same kind of intellectual history, but it's still going to, you know, tell you about what's on people's minds. Right. One of the one, uh, beginning of the book, one of the first essays you have here is uh, from John Simbach, born in the, on the sea from Guyana. Uh, mm-hmm. Women's Spiritual Middle Passage in the Early Black Atlantic, which really points to the fact that a lot of this, particularly 18th, 19th century um, women, were talking very much with using religious language and religi- ap- appealing to religion and speaking about their experience within a religious context. Yeah. Do you think that, that that puts off a lot of scholars? Um. I think it can be. I mean, I think it can. I have to. I have to admit that when I was working on my dissertation, which became my first book, I was a little horrified to discover how much I needed to know about the Bible to talk about, to even read what 19th century blacks had to say, because you know, it's it's you know, it's 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 what sort of you know forms people's knowledge and morality for most of. For many years, you know, well into the prior to the 20th century, um, and um, it's also a, a, a religion is also a site where we get to sort of hear people talk and and you know even record some of the fragments that someone like John Sensback uses. Um, so I think it poses a challenge to people. In some ways, I don't think the history of religion is in any great renaissance right now, and um, it may be somewhat off-putting to have to kind of navigate those kind of sources because you have to have a kind of strong background in, in, in the history to navigate those sources. Um, but once you do, as someone like Sensback has done, you begin to find all these sort of rich texts. I mean, he uses baptismal records and things like that, and also the kinds of questions it raises because looking at these people through the lens of religion also gives you a window into what's important. I mean, he he was thinking in particular in this essay about how slave women who have children born on the Sea of Guinea or shortly thereafter, how do you kind of reconstruct a world for your children, a religious world for your children when you've been through an experience that has moved you to such an unimaginably different place? So it's part of what I can, it seems to me like it's part of the idea that these women were inarticulate. Not only were they not writing, not formal education, but religion seems to be one of those places that can be considered sort of irrational, inarticulate mumblings. So that uh, it makes, it even creates a prejudice against them because they were speaking so much in religious terms. I, I think it, could except I think people often have the, their first reaction when they see people speaking in religious terms is oh these people are just sort of parroting some kind of religious doctrine that they've heard from some white preacher or whatever priest or whatever the case may be but I think when people have begun to look very carefully at um, the actual practices and what people are doing and begin to really study it they find you know, a much more interesting dialogue and a much more sort of oppositional, uh, they find oppositional forms of various religions. They find um, people mixing together various religions, doing things that are actually very interesting from an intellectual point of view and shouldn't be so readily dismissed. And perhaps one of the problems we've had in the past is that people haven't been willing to kind of journey deep into those sources and sort of figure out what's going on. Now, what's at play in all these essays, I think, in the end, it comes, it comes across at the very, the very last essay, mm-hmm. which is about the 20, uh, 20, oh, 2008 uh, Obama-Clinton mm-hmm. uh, challenge in the president's presidential campaign. I found that that sort of brought everything together, like, this mm-hmm. is why we are doing this. Right. That was part of the goal, that that essay would include it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I'm going to go backwards and ask you about what what was going on in 2008? Uh-huh. Because your your project started in 2002, is that right, at Rutgers? Yes, yes. yes. Um, well, in 2008, there was this 
sort of big debate over sort of, you know, support of, it was Clinton versus Obama, and people were talking about um, blacks had gotten the vote before women did, um, and it was making some people. It was making people a little crazy that there was this binary category of there were blacks and there were women, and apparently there were no people who occupied both categories in the public discourse. And it was amazing how often people were actually talking about blacks. Black history versus women's history, as if they were mutually, you know, completely separate categories. Yeah, there's a quote in there that essay says African African Americans were all men and all women were white. Yes, I mean that that's actually a, in the title of a famous early anthology on, on Black women's history because it's something that sort of comes up again and again. The idea that um, you can sort of blacks can be discussed as male and then. Um, women are all white. And that's partially because there is this long history of, of according the kind of feminine privileges to women, um, to white women. So these sort of certain kinds of womanhood are reserved for white women. So you get a lot of, it's sort of almost built into a lot of the ways we understand things like women's work is often considered domestic work, whereas for black women in this country, it was rarely limited to the domestic sphere. Now, you put these essays, or you put the whole uh, field of black women's intellectual history in the African diaspora, mm -hmm. and you're dealing with North America, the Caribbean, and some African things. But one of the essays early in the book is The Heart Sisters of Antigua by mm -hmm. uh, Natasha Lightfoot. Mm -hmm. And that, that essay... I think brought another problem that I didn't see much addressing, and that is the the colorism and the interracial uh, mixing that these mm -hmm. women were navigating because they were married to white men. They were free mm -hmm. women married to white men, mm -hmm. and there seemed to be a lot of slippage, I think, in how they were going to relate to black other black people and to men. They were in a very awkward place, the Heart, yes. the Heart Sisters. Yeah, they were in an awkward place to find that by the very specific place they were in. Um, I mean, it, it, in the United States, for instance, it would have been illegal for them to be married to white men for most of the U.S. history. But they're in Antigua, where there's not that many white women. But they're also occupying, and this comes up fairly frequently in black women's history, you know, they're occupying a much higher class position than um, a lot of other black people. And they're sort of modeling themselves on female roles of, sort of middle class respectability and wanting to sort of help people. But they also want to distance themselves from blacks more generally. Um, and, you know, I think they're just, you know, they they underscore that um you know, that, that there's always been sort of multiple classes and multiple forms of intersectionality in African-American history and, and different kinds of subject positions that people are dealing with. So it seems like in the future, as we build on this essay, these essays, which are excellent, with, mm -hmm. uh, one, of the, one of the things we would want to explore maybe is how this uh, race is a category that sort of is uh, fluid and changes over time and place, how women mm -hmm. negotiated that, because where they were located kind of changed, depend on the culture and other things that are going on. Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, it's um, even in my own essay, which is about um, 19th century African-American women, you know, I'm dealing mostly in dealing with articulate women. You are dealing with women who, um, you know, are more likely to be middle class. And you have to think about the degree to which they're speaking for other women or distancing themselves from for other from other women um in the african-american community middle-class blacks often felt a need to kind of represent the group as a whole and you see them doing that but they're also you know they also are often talking from a different class position and i'm also wondering about in the 19th century one of the things that you say in your, your essay was that i never thought of this before that black women in the 19th century didn't talk about race in public mm -hmm. for the most part Maria Stewart does, but uh, they tended to talk about what? What did they talk uh, about? 
I mean, that was, they tended to talk about the thing. I mean, they were very concerned with establishing their respectability because black women were sort of so notoriously unrespectable to the public mind that just their sort of existence as these well-dressed middle-class females was sort of a challenge. And then they wanted to be the most respectable of middle-class females. So they talked about religion and morality. They, they um, you know, tried to, they, I mean, it was, generally true in the Victorian era, that 19th century period, that, you know, women weren't supposed to talk about controversial subjects. They weren't supposed to be experts on, um, on you know, sort of manly subjects, which had to do with almost everything to do with race, um, and that they were supposed to sort of, you know, be experts on morality and so forth. And that's what you find a lot of black women confining themselves to. So the 19th century race discourse was pretty much contained in, in, a, in a male discourse. Men, it's black men engaging with white men. To, yes, almost entirely. I mean, and, and, and ex- extensive engagements with white men where they sort of argue over um, what, was, what we now call pseudoscientific racism, but then was called ethnology, the, the study of the races, and they argue, you know, about... Is there a difference between the races? What is its origin? Is it biological? Does it have to do with a, you know, different descent in the human family? A lot of them discuss it, and black women simply don't engage these subjects publicly. Occasionally, they'll mention them, mention these subjects like in their diaries or privately, but they don't talk about it. Like I'm thinking about so Sojourner Truth, who mm-hmm. spent most, who most of her uh, challenge is saying, "I'm a woman." Two, mm-hmm. call, count me as a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was, she, and she tried, she, I don't think she did talk about race, now that no. I think about it. She didn't. Um, I mean, I think she once denounced some racist thinker who had been talking about blacks being monkeys and just was like, that's absurd, but she doesn't talk about race. I mean, her challenge is kind of, you know, establishing herself as a woman. And women are in a very different position often in engaging racial thought because while men are arguing, while black men are arguing that they're as manly and strong and everything as white men, women like Sojourner Truth are arguing, I'm a woman, I'm feminine, I'm, you know, I'm, I need to be protected, not necessarily Sojourner Truth, but someone like Maria Stewart is kind of saying, we, you know, we, we can't be treated like this, we're women. Now, you just brought Maria Stewart and Sojourner Truth in the same uh, <laughs> sentence there, and I want to talk about those two women because I think that they really I have a question about that. It has to do with their status. Maria mm-hmm. Stewart was a free one; she was born free, mm-hmm. and Sojourner Truth was not. Mm-hmm. Did there that does that influence or affect how they talked about things, how they viewed the world in terms of if you're born a free woman and you're born in slavery, I think that they would have some sort of uh, effect on the kinds of things you're going to talk about. I think it made a big difference. I mean, Sojourner Truth was born in slavery. She was known for being incredibly physically strong. I mean, she was known and kind of valued for it, and she had a sense of herself as this sort of strong working person. Um, so, I mean, under, under, I mean, the, the conditions of life under slavery tended to make male and female roles more similar um, and, and, you know, sort of have you created women like Sojourner Truth, who was sort of part of her sense of identity of herself was a sort of a strong woman who could work like a man. You don't get that so much once, once women are free. People are beginning to try to find a more feminine understanding and, and aspiring to sort of a, a life more like white women's. Yeah, because it seems like Sojourner Truth, who really presented herself as very strong, she was also challenging the she wasn't just asking to be included in femininity or in womanhood. She was challenging the in, the definitions of what a woman was. Yes, yes. And I think, I mean, I think that's one thing you get for women coming out of slavery is they bring out the somewhat different sex role out of slavery where they've been used to actually being much less subservient to men than, than was true for white women. Um, and that that's something that comes out of slavery with them. I mean, I think you see it among the freed people and you see it among the children of freed people like Ida B. Wells. Um, you know, she grew up in a family where her parents had relatively 
egalitarian sex roles. Um, and, you know, she had a sense, as did a number of women of her generation, is, is, you know, like women could be leaders, women could be strong, that that was okay in a way that was maybe more difficult for white women of her generation to feel that way. So when you're dealing with uh, black women's intellectual history, you're really dealing with a very uh, detailed, complex field because it's not just simply women who happen to be black. There's a lot of other things at play here. Status is one of them, religion. Sort of work history because black women have traditionally worked outside the home to a much greater degree than white women um, for a long, long time. So you have, you know, you have the different history affects the, the, the gender roles. So what is your uh, favorite part of this uh, project that you've been working on? I think what's been fascinating and really gratifying is to actually sort of have this big conversation about um, black women thinkers across different times and places. I think that what a lot of us felt when this group first began meeting um, was just that we had – you know, we've been kind of considering these ideas by ourselves, and we hadn't really um, heard about what other people were doing or what kinds of insights they were coming up with. And it was just really exciting to think about um, black women's ideas and how one would study them, you know, in a sort of across a big canvas and kind of look at what kind of themes emerged. There's an essay uh, about uh, women in Haiti, particularly called Daughter of Haiti, but about Marie Javet. I'm not sure how to say that, uh, Uh by uh, Kema L. Glover. Glover? Yes. Yeah, that that was very interesting because when we think of Haiti and the history of Haiti is a very political history. The intellectuals are men who are... Not only who are arguing, but they're they're actually fighting. I mean, they're politically active in a very on the ground sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And this essay, talk, you know, is talking about a woman in Haiti who is not apolitical. She's non non aligned in her politics, mm-hmm. but her, nevertheless, her novels have mm-hmm. a lot of political import. Talk mm-hmm. about how you're go- how that is an example of of how we have to look sometimes elsewhere mm-hmm. to find the the political ideas of black women. Well, I, yeah, that's a great point. And I, I think that, I mean, where you begin to, you be, we've already, I think, when you look at some of the work by literature scholars on black women's fiction, you see um, that, you know, that sort of intellectual history emerging. I'm thinking of Claudia, Claudia Tate's book, Political, that talked about black women's novels from the late 19th century as, um, as deeply political. The domestic sphere is sort of what they're dealing with, but in very political ways. And you see that in so many um, black women's writings, and perhaps in part because that is the sphere in which they can kind of think about these things and deal with these things but for whatever reason um black women writers are typically often like like black male writers very much concerned with the status of the race the future of the race with you know political exploitation the various problems that blacks confront but um because they're not necessarily going to be at the head of a church or a leader of a political party they deal with them in the context of fiction um, and other kind of more sort of feminine genres. Now there was, yes, in that essay, there was a quote that says that Chauvet uh, wrote in resistance to both ruthlessly brutalizing authoritarian governments and against the constraints of elite female subjecthood. Mm -hmm. So she is tackling everything. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, you you see that in so many of these women. I mean, Maria Stewart, when she starts to preach, is, is, is in preaching herself, she's sort of challenging whether, why can't women speak? What if Jesus tells them to? Um, and, um, I mean, that's why it's difficult to contain black women with, 
within either the history of sort of the black freedom struggle as represented by men or in the women's movement because they really are trying to find a place where they can speak. Which reminds me, when you're talking about the black freedom uh, struggle, uh, I'm reminded of black nationalism and Florence <laughs> Kennedy and her taking on the whole idea of, of, of race suicide or black genocide. Right, right. Talk about that a little bit. Um, well, I mean, she was taking on the sort of male focus slash misogyny in the black nationalist movement um, that sort of um, erased women and sort of the whole future of the race really had to do with black men and how they fared. Wasn't that right? Well, it, was, it wasn't also that, that black women were to have lots and lots of children, large families. Well, yeah, see, that is the problem with black nationalism is that it often requires black women to take on very traditional roles. Um, they're supposed to prop up black male leadership in a variety of ways, including biological ways, having large families so that the race will prosper. And that's that's a sort of longstanding tension within black nationalism. You see it in uh, the, you know, black Muslims and a variety of different groups. Yeah, with, I think what this author does... Um Judith, uh, is it no, no, no? It's Sherry M. Randolph. Sherry Randolph, yeah. Yeah. What is she? What she's doing is she's basically saying that that Florence Kennedy was really a very critical uh, piece of creating the R the pro-abortion, pro-choice arguments. <laughs> yes. And she did it within the black community, of defending black women who were getting illegal abortions and their right to get legal and safe abortions. Right. And uh, she's putting her back into that history of uh, the pro-choice history that we often don't associate her with. We associate her with uh, general freedom movements, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. but we don't associate her with with choice. Right. The history of choice. Yeah, that's true. And And her arguments against the idea that abortion was race suicide. Yes. Was really very provocative at that time, I think. Yeah, I think that, that, I mean, there's been these various moments in African-American history where black women have been really sort of, you know, pushed to the wall by this notion of sort of notions of race loyalty when they begin to cohere around something that is particularly, um, you know, particularly unsympathetic to, to women having any freedom at all. And one of the one of one of those moments is definitely the race suicide moment where it's it's you know, it's what are you gonna how can how can if this is idea has been accepted, what does it mean for women and women need to sort of push back. And that is one of those moments where you see black women really having to kind of choose between what's being articulated as race loyalty and what they believe in and try to try to articulate their own position. Now, Kennedy was also one of a fewer number of black women who joined white women Mm -hmm. uh, in, you know, in feminism and women's rights, because a lot of black women did not want to join in with white women Mm -hmm. in their own struggle for uh, their rights as women, because they didn't want to, I guess betray 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 the race in some way. So there's that kind of dynamic also, right? Yeah, or they often I mean they often confronted a kind of racism within white women's movements that made them unwilling and suspicious of them. I mean both within the temperance temperance and the suffrage movement um which were very closely connected. Um black women had to deal with the fact that these movements were often quite hostile to black people, uh, the suffrage, suffrage movements, um, you know, for instance, um, you know, turned a blind eye to the disenfranchisement of black men and also didn't let uh, black women, you know, join the same suffrage groups in the southern states or try to discourage them from marching with them even in Washington. So it was that kind of racism that made it a difficult choice sometimes to ally with groups, but sometimes it was also necessary as in the case of Flo Kennedy. I mean, if you want to work on freedom of choice, you need to ally with white women more generally. Um, so I think they were always making choices around that. Okay. Now the, uh, 
one woman that came up that what that I was kind of surprised was not that she came up, but the way she came up was Alice Walker mm-hmm. as being sort of very instrumental or maybe an influence in the New Southern studies. I had never thought about her that way either at all. Um. Can you kind of unpack that for the audience? Well, let's see. I'm not sure I can entirely, um, but um, I'm trying to reconstruct Cheryl Wall's argument, but I mean, I think that she sort of deals with the ways in which the new Southern studies are often kind of looked at through the lens of white writers. Am I remembering this correctly? Um, And when you actually look at someone like Alice Walker, I mean, her work is, is deeply, deeply engaged in, in the South as a place and um, reconstructing it and dealing with it in certain ways. So that that sort of sort of sets the tone, maybe for inspires or sets the tone for a new way to look at the South. I think so. I mean, I think that that's. I mean, that is another longstanding tension: is that there, there was there has been this sort of historical tendency to, for the South to be claimed the sort of whites when they talk about you know the South as it's supposed to be the sort of white South. Um, literally a lot of institutions that have Southern studies and so forth, it it focuses on whites. But of course the African-American experience is so fundamentally Southern that, um, and and, um, there's so much kind of interracial exchange in Southern history that this is obviously an area that cannot be reduced to a sort of white place despite segregation and so forth. I'm going to return back to the historiography and field questions because I think that those are the questions that are going to be probably critiqued mm-hmm. more. I think that's going to be critiqued more than the individual essays. I think the individual essays are absolutely outstanding. Mm-hmm. There's some excellent scholarship here and lots of places to go. But I think that the, the, the claim that you're making or the place that you're situating yourself as an, a, a new subfield mm-hmm. might get some pushback. First, first, because, okay, we've got U.S. intellectual history, and then mm-hmm. we've got within that, we've got black, you know, African-American intellectual history. And mm-hmm. now you're going further. You're going to women, black women intellectual history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how many ways can you slice this field, And which is already a small field in the begin, to start with. Intellectual history is not that big. So have you heard uh, critiques of this? What is your response to those critiques? Well, for one, I, do, I mean, I don't think we need to think of it as, as slicing. I mean, I think I'm a, I'm a lumper rather than a splitter. I mean, I think it's, I think it's more about we need to include it. Um, I think, you know, some people would say, well, the, you know, there's just not the source material. There's not the evidence there. Um, but, I mean, the people who most often say this are the people who haven't really looked haven't really or thought about the different ways of, of looking. I think that when you get people who, you know, are willing to dig, you can look for things um, and and perhaps find them. And that, um, you know, if people take this seriously, I think it will kind of be an opportunity to enrich the sort of broader field of intellectual history by looking at the different voices, the influences, the exchanges, um, and, you know, actually looking for those often silent black women, looking at the, you know, where they might be, where they might be having an influence, where they might, you know, be playing a role in the household, all of those things. But just sort of thinking of thinking of thinking of thinking of them, I guess, you know, rather than sort of having them be invisible. Because one of the, things, one of the challenges that I see is that we've already have a lot of problems just including the idea of. Uh, gender, mm-hmm. using gender as a form of analysis mm-hmm. in intellectual history. We've mm-hmm. already have that already. Yes. Um, it, but it seems like what you're doing might illuminate some of that and encourage, uh, it look, because, you know, intellectual history has been pretty much male-dominated. It has changed somewhat, but mm-hmm. we still suffer from a lack of Ana- gender analysis to ideas mm-hmm. that ideas themselves and who is 
articulating them are mm-hmm. shaped by by gender. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I, I mean, I think. I mean, I'm not quite sure where this will go in the sense that it, it I think it, it like you said in the beginning, I do see it as very much of a challenge. But part of it is you know, to push people to think about the gender roles and how they're shaping people's ideas and how, um, think about the existence of the people we don't think of as intellectuals and how they might be articulating ideas, which in turn might have an influence even on traditional ideas. Yeah, I'm thinking in terms of the fact that when you're talking about black men and black women, how Mm -hmm. black men talk about race and Mm -hmm. how black women are going to talk about race. Totally different. That the, yes, the words they're going to use and how they're going to express that is going to. Ha- so we need to use some sort of gender analysis to parse that out and say why are black men and black women speaking about race in such different ways? That's just one issue. You know, you could look at the, uh, freedom. You could look how they define freedom. How a black man's going to talk about freedom. How a black woman's going to talk about freedom, or democracy, or citizenship. It seems that. Um, your what you're doing uh, within Black intellectual history can help us make some of those differentiation where gender is actually implicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it also provokes, you know, just on the subject of talking about race, thinking more about how white women talk about race. Like like Black women, they don't talk about it that much, but when they do, they talk about it in entirely gendered terms, and um, you know, to, so to sort of pay attention to these pay attention in intellectual history to, to when certain conversations are all male, regardless of whether they're about gender or not, and try to think about why they're all male. Um, you know, I mean, I think that's part of it, you know, to think about like what, you know, when, what, what it means for certain ideas to be associated mostly with men um, and where women might be on the same points. Because I didn't realize when we were talking about the 19th century and I read that the race discourse was, and they were talking about the races of of man, they were talking about literally the male. Yes, exactly, exactly. I mean, I kind of knew this, but I don't know why that particular line struck me. I knew that man always sort of meant male, but uh, the races of man, I just was thinking, wow, uh I didn't realize it was that. It just becomes so clear when you start hearing, because it's a hierarchy, and when you hear them listing the values and stuff, then you're like, oh, yeah, manly, you know, aggressive, um, all these things. They're not talking about women. And that was the other thing that was so striking about them talking about Whitley. Phyllis Wheatley as an example of whether or not blacks are intelligent. They would have never used a white woman as an example of whether or not whites were intelligent. Right, because women are a a different category. Yeah, um, but with, with, you know, Phyllis Wheatley could somehow sub as a generic black person. No, and it does seem to me like when you're, re- uh, you're looking at all these essays and you're, uh, tr- looking at all these subjects that are looked at and examined, that black women, that there is a distinct particular sort of discourse that they're engaged in throughout, you know, 200 years that you're covering. Mm-hmm. And that that it is distinct and particular to them and their position uh, within uh, race politics and also gender politics. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is one of the biggest um, arguments that you have going of why this is a distinct subfield that needs to be acknowledged. Yeah, I think we did find, you know, I mean, I think we did find that there's there is a sort of remarkable consistency of, you know, black women are often pushed to kind of, you know, say, aren't I a woman in one way or another? That you know, they have they have a specific set of issues that are that are sort of thrust upon them by by both their historical circumstances and the discourses around them. And you see so many different black women at different times dealing with some of the same questions um, in a way that you know begs further analysis. And one of the goals of this project is to go beyond this book. We have always had conferences with a sort of larger group, and we're hoping to have a kind of next-generation conference sometime next year and hopefully encourage people to continue working on this field. I know there's some good work that people are doing, and we want to encourage further work. 
I'm wondering about the intersectionality uh, question, not just the women themselves being in, in, in an intersection of many things, but also right. how they relate to black men, mm-hmm. uh, how they even challenge black men and what men are, black men are saying, that what the, what the race needs. Mm-hmm. Is there a lot, is there any or a lot uh, of challenge coming from black women or, or or just responding to black men to what they're saying. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think there is. I think there are always, on the one hand, I mean, at various different historical moments, they confront different um, challenges. Um, but I think they are always, on the one hand, or often very aware that um, black men are under assault, literally, physically sometimes, or, or more in the media other times. And they don't want to challenge, you know, they don't want to undermine black male leadership or question the capacity of black men for leadership. Yet at various points, they are, you know, they are dissatisfied with black male leadership. They, you know, they feel like it's not active enough. They are consciously aware that they have something to add to these conversations and they're also consciously aware that they're not represented which is why you see these sort of voices you know these voices like Maria Julia Cooper and uh, I mean Anna Maria Julia Cooper and Maria Stewart sort of speaking up in the 19th century and which is why you see someone like Flo Kennedy speaking out against race suicide you know there are these sort of positions that are being taken by black men for the good of the race that women simply have to challenge. Like there's one thing that's very contemporary of the moment right now is this book by Coates, Between the World and Me. Right. And I heard him the other day on Terry Gross, and he was talking about uh, living with fear as a young man, bodily fear of Mm -hmm. of his body, of being assaulted. That that sort of shapes was a very formative experience for him. And I, I thought about it. I'm thinking, wow, black women are just women. Women feel like this all the time, you know, and black women particularly feel even more so. Right, right. Uh, that, uh, you know, going out at night, that you want to go out with someone, you don't want to be by yourself because you're, you're constantly taught from the time you're very young as right. a woman um, to be safe, take care of yourself, you know, uh, because you're constantly under assault. But it was interesting to me that him as a young black man who's strong mm-hmm. uh, was talking about bodily vulnerability mm-hmm. when there's so much more of that, I think, particularly with black women, bodily vulnerability. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think one of the strengths of Coates' book, which I haven't had a chance to read yet, but I, I mean, the way he writes it in very particularly as a black man writing to his son, you know, I think he is getting at a particular type of bodily vulnerability that comes from being someone who is, is, is partially under threat of assault because they're seen as dangerous, which I think is a very particular type of feeling and, um, one that I wouldn't discount, but it's, it's true as a man, he can't testify to the many things that women feel. And, and there's this female vulnerability. And I think for some black women, there is some sense that they are also being perceived as, as threatening. A friend of mine who does um, work on racial profiling was finding that, you know, police, particularly when they pulled aside big black women could be very hostile to them. So, I mean, the body and its subject position and the degree to which gender even intervenes in, in, in it or doesn't, it, it's very, very complicated. Right. So it just the, the history of that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Coates is sort of the end point right now because this is where we are right now. But uh, going back to a long history of this and how women, uh, black women, uh, would negotiate this uh, bodily vulnerability versus how black men would negotiate mm-hmm. that. And yeah. I think that that would very be very interesting sort of exploration. Yeah, it would be. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think that's, there's some, there's some good work that people have done on like, um, children growing up in the Jim Crow South. I'm thinking of Jennifer Ritterhouse's book, um, growing up Jim Crow or some, something like that, where she talks about, you know, what people teach their children, um, you know, about, 
walking out in the world. And, you know, for, for black male children, it would be all about, you know, don't antagonize anybody. And then for black female children, it would be all about being, putting yourself in a safe position in terms of any possible sexual assault. I think what I really love about this uh, book that you brought together was this con- this immense connection between thought and action and mm-hmm. between ideas and lived experience. I love the way that it's all sort of together mm-hmm. and it's, there's not a, this binary uh, is, it's just, it's just more, much more holistic. Well, maybe it may be the idea of a sort of binary intellectual history is kind of an artifact of this sort of elite class about when it's, about which it's written, the idea that there could be someone who's so divorced from like daily concerns, such as someone's going to beat me up. That's it. Okay. They can just think, you know? Okay. That would be, that would be a a white man in an ivory tower, right? That's what I'm saying. Right. With a woman who does his laundry and brings him a meal every day. Exactly. Right. Okay. We've got a long history of that. Yes. We know about that. Okay. So So this is, this is really people who are worried about being beat up, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So what's next for you or this project? I know you've talked about, you you indicated that you're working on maybe expanding or going forward. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually currently working on a book on the, um, called Traveling Black. It's a social history of segregated transportation. It does deal with women because they have a lot of problems on segregated transportation. They're not, black women are not allowed to ride in a lady's car, for instance, Um, which I think is, you know, a sort of point of departure for thinking about, am I a woman? Another point of departure for thinking about these, aren't I a woman kind of questions. Um, So um, I'm, I'm dealing with, that book, but we're also, I'm also beginning to organize another conference in the spring with some of the kind of next generation people who are working on black women's intellectual history, like Brittany Cooper, who's one of my colleagues at Rutgers, who has a book coming out called Race Woman, um, and some other colleagues. And um, I'm really interested to see where this goes. It's the kind of project that is sort of by, by nature and by necessity collaborative. It's, it's a sort of big subject and not something I think that could be easily done by uh, one person. But I think part of what black women's intellectual history or thinking about it is, is to is sort of prompts people to try to rethink, you know, what is intellectual history? What are its foundations? What, what forms can it take? And what kind of questions does it deal with? And I guess one of them would be, you know, the sort of subjectivity question we've been talking about, you know, sort of what is your, what is your personal experience and what is it shape, you know, to, what influence does it have on what you think about and what kind of theories you come up with? And I, and I do think you, I think your book is going to have some impact on what your field that you're developing on how we think about gender in intellectual history overall. I think, I that, so. I think that that is a, a contribution that definitely needs to be made. And I think it's, that's wonderful. So Mia, thank you for your time. You've been very generous. It's been a wonderful conversation and I want to uh, say I'm hope that does you go does well with this book because I love it. All right, well, wonderful, thank you, and I'll look forward to talking to you again sometime. Thank you, Mia, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. I welcome your comments. You can email me at newbooks.gender@gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger. <laughs>